These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. Well, today I have the, the good fortune of, of interviewing Roger Blobalm, who is a longtime organic agriculture consu uh, consultant and advocate. And um, I'm delighted to talk with Roger in particular because more than anybody else I've had the privilege of interviewing, Roger has the longest history and can tell us really about actually about five decades worth of work in the area of agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Uh, domestic, international, and all of these areas. And a lot of this work that Roger's done, thanks to his own archive and, and website, is available to the public already. So I want to get some of that, but I really am looking forward to having you talk about how you got into this. And I'd like you to take it all the way back to that farm in Iowa and up through your military service and your whole transition from journalist to advocate. Um, I think I'm thinking that people in the future, when they look at these archives, are really going to want to know who are these people and why did they get into this uh, subject when it uh, was much of the time uh, kind of facing a headwind, but sticking with it. So, Roger, why don't you just start at the beginning? OK, I grew up on a uh, crop and livestock farm uh, in southern Iowa. Um, my dad did not use um, uh, synthetic fertilizers or any kind of farm chemicals. And so I, I really believe that uh, our farm could have been certified organic at that time, or certainly it was more of a biodynamic farm. My dad was, uh, his, his background was German and he learned farming in the German way from his father. I think one of the things that, that I often mention uh, about uh, growing up on the farm, we had, we had dairy cattle. Uh, we milked 12 to 15 cows. At that time, that was, that was quite a few. We had a beef operation and we had hogs. And, and I think one of the things that influenced me later was the fact that in all the time I was growing up, we only had a vet out at the farm once. I mean, animal health was a given. And as I later uh, visited many, many organic farms, one of the things that was always brought up was animal health and the fact that they never, they never had any vet bills. So that was, that was an influence uh, kind of where I came from. I went to Iowa State University and I minored in agronomy, which was good because it helped me later as I got into organic and sustainable. Uh, I was trained, of course, as a journalist, an agricultural journalist. And, um, and in terms of how I became interested in policy, my first real job was as a state house reporter for the Associated Press in Madison. And so I covered the legislature and state government. And so I saw uh, people who were making policy close up. And I became interested. And the, the real, I, I wanted to go to Washington, of course. And the real break came when I won a congressional fellowship. 
which provided for a year's study of Congress in Washington. So I've made it to Washington. Uh, I was a, uh, I interned then in the office of the House Majority Whip, and then over to the Senate Majority Whip, who was Hubert Humphrey, and um, became very much involved in um, in policy in in both places. At the end of this period, um, I joined the staff of uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, who I had known as as governor when I was a reporter, and my area. Uh, was, well, first of all, I was press secretary, but I also had legislative responsibilities, the farm area and the environmental area. So those two went together nicely. And I think one of the things that uh, really got me interested in organic and sustainable later on was I was given the, the job of doing the staff work on the bill to ban uh, the manufacturer of DDT, and and Senator Nelson uh, gave me that assignment. And it's interesting that, of course, all of the regulation of pesticides at that time uh, was was still in USDA. The EPA had not yet been been set up, and and so Senator Nelson said to me, Roger, when you get this bill ready. Uh, and through legislative council and so forth, who actually drafts it, he said, I want you to take it to the, to the parliamentarian of the Senate and make sure that that bill goes to my committee and not to the agriculture committee. Because if it goes to the agriculture committee, we can just forget about it. Right. And that was really good advice. And I was able to go to the parliamentarian and I was able to get this bill into Senator Nelson's committee. And that was in the 60s, right? That was in the 60s. I remember Silent Spring and yes. Kennedy even being involved in it, uh, becoming aware of the problem. Yes. And I had left, of course, before this was finally became law in the early 70s. I think I can't remember what year. But um, Senator Nelson had a great influence uh, on me and in my whole career. Uh, you know, the founder of Earth Day and someone who truly uh, believed in um, in the environment. So uh, I guess kind of carrying this a step further, I decided to go back to the area in southern Iowa where I'd grown up and run for Congress. Yes. I mean, there are a number of people, I think, who are staff people. Uh, who do that. Uh, I spent a whole year running for Congress. Uh, and I came very close to winning. Mm -hmm. If I could have switched five votes for, for precinct, I would have won. Mm -hmm. But um, I did not have the financial ability to run again. But I decided, I had already decided that if I lose, I'm going to set myself up as a consultant in the place where I grew up. And I'm going to start working on, um, I didn't, I hadn't been introduced yet to organic, but on environmental issues and to set myself up. And actually that's what I've done for more than 40 years. But my work, uh, in terms of what I did on the Hill, it was 50 years ago that I worked on the 1965 farm bill. 
and actually did the work on a on a title that was part of the Farm Bureau, of course, with Senator Nelson, of course, being the person who who did this. So one of the interesting things about how you make things happen. Um, I was trained as a writer, uh, which was very helpful. But in running for Congress, I had to speak somewhere almost every day. And I learned to do public speaking and to be comfortable with public speaking. And that helped me enormously in the advocacy that I became involved in. So when it came to organic, this was a kind of an accident. Uh, several of us, uh, after Earth Day, uh, set up something called Iowans for Environmental Quality, a nonprofit organization. And I remember uh, we had a board meeting uh, on a September Saturday afternoon. And the chair of this organization, who was a young professor from Iowa State, said, I'm going to visit an organic farm this afternoon. Does anyone want to go with me? I had no idea what he was talking about. So, of course, I said, well, yes, I'd love to go with you. So we went out and visited Clarence Van Sant's organic farm. And we drove into the yard, and, you know, the dog was barking, and there were chickens running around. And Clarence came out and met us, and he, and he had a shovel in his hand. And he said, come on, let me kind of show you around. So this was September now, and we walked out along the edge of the cornfield, and Clarence turned over some shovels full of black dirt, and the earthworms rolled out. And then we looked at his, his Charlet cattle and his uh, Timothy and Red Clover um, field, and so forth. When I saw those earthworms roll out, I said to myself, I'm seeing something that I haven't seen before. So I, I asked Clarence, well, you know, what is this organic farming thing? You know, we're, who's doing this? He said, well, there are quite a few organic farmers here in Iowa and all across uh, the Midwest. They're doing very well financially. Uh, and he said, um, we get no help from the government or anybody in the agricultural establishment. But he said, the Rodale Press is uh, providing information. And that's where we're getting a lot of what we're, the information that we're sharing with each other. So I said to myself, I, I've got to follow up on this. I'm just really fascinated by this. So in those days, if you wanted to go somewhere, you just jumped in the car. So I jumped in the car and I drove out to Emmaus, Pennsylvania, to the, to the Rodale Press without any advance warning. And I said, um, I'd like to have a grant so I can visit 50 organic farms. And they said, well, we don't give grants, grants but I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, if you want to go out and visit a lot of farms, and write stories about them and photograph them, we will run those stories in Organic Gardening and Farming magazine. And so that's really how I got involved in organic uh, itself. So for several years, I visited organic farms, wrote articles, did recordings, not only for that magazine, but I also got these stories 
uh, placed elsewhere. I think there are about 30 of these stories on my website. But anyway, I was so inspired by what I saw on these farms and, and the, the dedication and commitment of these farmers that I decided that I want to make organic farming uh, the emphasis of my work as a consultant and, and my life's work, really. And that, of course, is a decision that, that I have never uh, regretted. And so it kind of went on from there, and I just became more and more involved in organic projects and organic and sustainable uh, projects, and then in organizations. Uh, I think over the years, uh, I've served on the board of more than 30 organizations. I became fascinated with nonprofits yeah. and the way they mobilize uh, public support were things that I wanted to see. So that's kind of how it all unfolded. And, uh, and I was very happy with this work and very satisfied uh, personally and professionally. So after you did your, this good, important journalism with the organic farms, where did you go then? How did you, you eventually ended up in Washington, D.C. again, didn't you? And, uh, but what's the trail that comes from, from your work after the Rodale? Uh, well, I, I became involved in, um, in, in projects, really. Right. Uh, the Small Farm Energy Project right. with the Center for Rural Affairs, uh, where we uh, worked with farmers in home-built solar systems and, and things of this kind, doing um, measurements so that we actually had um, uh, scientific papers and, and, and we also spread the word uh, on solar applications on farms. This was a very big project. I think we had a 39-month grant from the Federal Poverty Agency, as it turns out, because yes. these were small, low-income farmers. I became uh, associated with uh, the Center for Biology Systems at Washington University, which was um, headed by Barry Commoner, who was a very famous environmentalist at that time. And because of my work in farm energy, I was on an advisory committee um, for, for the center. And because in my visits to organic farms, I, I discovered that almost all of them talked about how they were using less energy. And it seemed to me that this somehow needed to be documented. And it was not. It was not recognized or documented. It was certainly a benefit uh, of organic farming. And so I, I went to the center and I knew they had a big grant not from USDA, but from the National Science Foundation. And I said, I think you ought to do a project that looks at and documents uh, how energy is being saved uh, by organic farmers. And so uh, I would say six months later, I got a call and said, Roger, why don't you go out and recruit uh, why don't you recruit about 30 organic farmers who will agree to be, become part of a study that we're going to do? And so I did that. I knew a lot of organic farmers, and they were happy to participate in a study. 
throughout your career, one of the things, of course, the world was changing and moving. And what, what uh, happened was growing awareness, not only about pesticides, but about the, how oil dependent our country was. And we had an oil crate, we had a gasoline problem, gas prices uh, crisis. So I think part of the energy work was a, uh, was a response to that. Yes, there was the Arab oil boycott. Right. There were gas lines. Right. And I remember one night I was returning from my work with the Center for Rural Affairs, and I got as far as Omaha, and there was not a single gas station open. And I had to rent a room that night because I couldn't even get home. Wow. I was out of gas, right. and you couldn't find any. Right. And I stayed at a motel that was near a gas station. So the next morning I could get up early and actually get enough gas to get home. It was that bad at that time. So the whole energy area was an area in which um, I became very active, involved in several projects. But the interesting thing about the Washington University study was that uh, in, the, in the process of, of doing this research, we also pulled soil samples. Uh, we had a, a workbook that was filled out by these farmers every six months about everything they did on the farm. And the result was that not only at the end did we show in this research that farmers were using, organic farmers, were using one-third less energy, but we also showed that because of all of the other documentation that we had, there was less soil erosion. And it showed that these organic farmers, even though their yields were a little less, they were making just as much profit as anybody else. This was a huge public finding. It was our, the result of our research was on the front page of the Sunday New York Times. And these people in the land-grant universities who had been uh, disrespecting, I guess, organic, said, how can this possibly be? And then we ended up with a peer-reviewed article in the American Journal of Agricultural Economics. Mm -hmm. So this was a breakthrough piece of research. And then other graduate students then at land-grants went ahead and replicated this study and got the same results. So this study from Washington University was a real breakthrough. Well, and I think that takes us up to approximately the Carter years. Um, and then we had uh, a Secretary of Agriculture from Minnesota named Rob, Bob Berglund, former congressman from Minnesota, who also then was learning about these things and picked up on it. I'd like to, to Talk about uh, the Berglund uh, years and what he was able to get doing that you worked with. Yes, there was, there was discrimination against organic farmers as well as disrespect. And they were laughed at, let's just get right down to it, by people in the establishment. I'm talking about USDA, the ag committees in Congress, and the big farm organizations. People are going to starve if we... Uh, how many yeah. people that quote yeah. about from Dutch? Secretary Earl Butt saying... We have to decide which 50 million people are going to starve if we move to organic farming. We had a, an assistant secretary of agriculture who said, we're going to have to have manure piles as high as the Empire State Building if we're going to make organic farming work. Well, it turns out 
that Secretary of Agriculture Bob Berglund, who I knew well, uh, had a neighbor who was an organic farmer. And Bob was aware of all of this disrespect and so forth for organic farmers. And he decided to have USDA do a study of what was actually going on here. And he had the study headed by uh, the head of an agency in USDA. So this was an official USDA study uh, that, that involves some scientists from other land-grant universities and so forth, and turned out this incredible 1980 report on organic farming, which not only said it was legitimate, described what organic farmers did and why they did it, but also laid out a whole program of what needs to be done in terms of research, extension, and all of the programs that USDA offers. This was a huge breakthrough. The people at the land-grant system, first of all, they'd been through the Washington University study that, you know, kind of busted things open. And here you had USDA coming out with this. It was a huge, huge development and made it so much easier for people like me and the people I worked with to advocate organic. Well, actually, this didn't turn out well in the end. Uh, right afterwards, a new uh, administration came in, uh, Secretary John Block, who was a very uh, conventional uh, farmer. Under Reagan. Under Reagan, yes. And so, uh, well, also Bob Berglund had appointed um, Garth Youngberg as uh, organic coordinator in the department. I mean, this was a real breakthrough. Well, as soon as this change took place, the organic coordinator was fired. They ordered all of the uh, copies of this document destroyed. As it turned out, none of them were destroyed because the people who had put this study together hid all these extra copies in a building out at Beltsville at the experiment station. And then they started sending them out to people. And one day I came home and the postman had left me a box with 500 copies of this report, which I then distributed as I went around and, and, and did speaking and so forth. So, um, but this really, um, you know, destroyed in many ways uh, the effect of this. So there were then attempts to have some kind of legislation as a follow-up. And so there was the Weaver bill, uh, Senator Leahy had a bill, and they did not get anywhere. And so this whole thing just kind of died down and fell flat. For the best part of the 80s, really. Yes, it exactly. didn't start picking up again till late in the 80s. Right? Yes. And I think it was it was significant and this is this is true today as it was then. Uh you couldn't you couldn't pass organic or sustainable agriculture bills on their own and you still can't today. They ride through with farm bills. And that's in fact how the Organic Foods Production Act made it through Congress because it was hooked onto the farm bill and rode it through. And that was true also of, of the SARE program, 
uh, which was uh, one of the things that developed in the 80s as a, a follow-up to the 1980 report. And the SARE stands for Sustainable, Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program. The, the thing that was not so good about the SARE program was that all of the language dealing with organic was stripped out uh, before it was finally adopted. And it started out as the LISA program, uh, low income sustainable agriculture. They didn't like the term LISA, so they changed it to the Yeah, they, they, t they didn't like the feminine name. People were making fun of it because it had right. a feminine name. Exactly. I remember that. And what, we, what we've had um, then and, and still do is only about 15% of the SARE, and this program still in existence, only about 15% of the projects were organic. And that has pretty much continued throughout. And it also continued in terms of the grants to graduate students that were part of this. Only 15% uh, were for organic projects. And so organic still was not really getting very far. But I think one of the things that was happening during this period, I think a, a lot of us were focusing on federal policy and what Congress does or what a president does. Meanwhile, uh, in the 80s, the state governments were moving forward uh, with organic. And I think this was because the organic farmers knew some legislators and the legislators, state legislators were not so hung up on this uh, disrespect for organic farmers. And by the end of the 80s, 26 states had statutes or organic programs of some kind, uh, and that, I think, set the stage then for the national legislation that followed. The other thing that happened in the 80s that was very significant was that a lot of other organizations became very much involved in organic as as earth-friendly farming, environmentally friendly farming. And so we began to see involvement of, org of um, environmental organizations like the Sierra Club, of the uh, consumer organizations um, like the Center for Science and the Public Interest, uh, faith-based organizations, National Catholic Real Life Conference and others. Um, and then the other development that kind of went with this was that the small organic farming organizations that cropped up in many of the states, plus uh, small organic certifiers, got together at a meeting in Kansas in 1989 and, and uh, organized Organic Farmers Association's Council. So here we had the organic farmers and the certifiers who also were organized uh, as, a, as an advocacy group, advocacy group. And I worked very closely with them because I was in Washington at the time mm -hmm. and they had no hip, hip experience. And so um, I had a very nice relationship then because also I knew organic. And so they felt comfortable with me. 
getting back to um, my return to Washington, which you asked about before, um, I wrote to uh, Mike Jacobson, the ex executive director of Center for Science and the Public Interest, and I knew that Mike had had some interest in organic early on. And I said, um, I'm, I'm sort of interested in getting more involved in that. And so, um, uh, Mike got back to me. I had actually written a chapter in a book that he had published. So he knew what I was doing. And he, and, and I became a consultant then to the center, uh, and, actually organized three national conferences. And the conferences were put forward as organic slash sustainable. We made the whole package. And those three conferences, for the first time, brought all elements of organic together. The trade, the farmers, uh, we had speakers from the government. Uh, and I think this also helped lay the groundwork uh, for the organic legislation that followed in 1990, in 1990 and was also helpful in, in the follow-up. And so I think that this is the first time that we really had this larger organic slash sustainable movement with all of these organizations, with the farmers involved, very active leadership provided by uh, the Center for Science and the Public Interest, for example, uh, we had um, put out petitions in um, health food stores across the country, and we had gathered 176,000 signatures from consumers saying we want organic standards. And so when uh, Senator Leahy proposed the Organic Foods Production Act, um, we were ready to uh, get right behind this and also to help influence uh, the legislation itself. For example, I pushed really hard for a provision that would allow lawsuits against USDA if they didn't shape up on organic because we had this incredible distrust uh, between the organic community and USDA. We didn't trust them at all. And so um, the Organic Foods Production Act also included the National Organic Standards Board, uh, which was a way for people in the community to influence USDA's administration of this. We, we had peer review because we didn't trust USDA's how they would do accreditation. And so we had things built into this legislation that we thought would help protect organic integrity. Well, anyway, um, the Organic Foods Production Act was hooked up to the Farm Bill, and so it floated right through the Senate. Uh, there were some, some USDA was fighting it all the way, and they succeeded in getting a title for organic research thrown out and some other things that, that weakened it. All references to health and environment were taken out of the bill, but, and it ended up really as more of a marketing bill than anything else. It went over to the House, 
to the um, House Agriculture Committee, the graveyard for things like this, and the House Agriculture Committee refused to report it out. So I was the lead off witness on the Senate side, and, and we had just a wonderful hearing. Uh, and I presented these 178,000 uh, signature petitions, which is a big deal. And then I also testified on the House side, but uh, the House just uh, sat on this and, and influenced by USDA and would not report it out for the Farm Bill. Well, Congressman Peter DeFazio of Oregon decided that he would take the Organic Foods Production Act from the Senate and propose it as a, an amendment on the House floor. And we had to decide, all of us who had been involved in this, should we go for this or not? And we finally decided we're going to take these people on. And so we called organic farmers and others all over the country, had them uh, get in touch with their members of Congress. And when DeFazio's amendment came up on the House floor, believe it or not, it won and beat all of these bad people. USDA, the House Agriculture Committee had never had this done to them before. But the key votes, and this is really important, going back to Rodale and, and the magazine and all of this, it was the votes of urban members of Congress who made the difference. So anyway, this was the first time that organic really had been um, recognized uh, respected in a policy sense. I think in my own case, having been involved in organic for many years, I wanted validation for what organic farmers were doing. I wanted them shown respect in the policy arena. And so this looked like it was uh, really a big deal. Uh, I was the co-chair of the organic working group, which was 27 national organizations that um, helped shape the bill and push it through Congress. So there was this, all of this buildup of support for organic through the 80s all came uh, down to when it was really needed and it made it possible to get the bill through. So um, and then, of course, there was, of course, the... Um, challenge of getting appropriations. And I was so just going to ask you to move there as I understand it. And I remember this myself, but like about an 11 or 12 year effort for these standards. That's right. So this thing um, seemed to be going very well. The organic, the uh, National Organic Standards Board was set up. It was a very good board. It went out and did hearings and meetings all over the country and came up with a, a wonderful proposed rule that we all were behind, the trade, the farmers, the nonprofit groups, and everybody. And then USDA put out the proposed rule, and it was an absolute disaster. They, they just, um, they didn't follow the NOSB recommendations at all. Uh, it was, it was just an awful moment for organic. So we decided to hold a big meeting in Washington. I, th I think there were probably 40 of us from all 
elements that had worked on this bill. Uh, we went through the proposed rule, which was 500 pages long, and we came up with um, uh, the 68 points of darkness, we called it. 68 problems with this thing. And, and we decided at that meeting, we're going to try and shove this back down USDA's throat and make them do it over. And we've backed this up uh, by getting comments on the proposed rule, 278,000 comments, one of the largest uh, number of comments ever in the federal government. And it was enough that USDA actually did take it back and do it over. So I guess my point is that policy-wise at the national level, organic had really arrived. Now there's been problems since uh, because um, the power that was given to the NOSB, USDA has never wanted to uh, go along with that. And they want to treat it like any other committee and it's not, it has statutory authority. We have a continuing battle uh, with the National Organic Program about organic integrity and the influence of others behind the scenes, big companies and, and so forth, who are trying to water down organic. So that's a, that's a continuing struggle. So that kind of brings us up to date yeah. uh, on, this, on this whole thing. It does, it does. You know, I, uh, I was wanting you to talk a little bit about that while we're on that area. The, uh, the fact on one level, there's great excitement. The fact that organics is really appearing in the mainstream and there's whole grocery stores, whole foods and I think dedicated to it and committed to it. At the same time, some of the big companies are, you know, either buying up or starting up their own organic lines. But, um, there's issues around that about what they now call the big O versus the little O for organics. And I'd like you to, I'd like your view on that whole trend and what that, what, how that looks to you after your life of working on this. Well, I think that uh, we're all concerned about uh, the organic guarantee and whether uh, USDA can be trusted to, um, to, to provide the guarantee. And we're very suspicious of companies, uh, large uh, conventional food companies, that wanted to get into organic and rather than developing their organic programs, their organic line, for example, they bought up the pioneer organic companies that were very important in, in developing the market and so forth. The other thing is that the appointments to the NOSB, we have had uh, a number of instances where the farmer slots in the NOSB have been filled by people from, from corporations or non, non-farmer entities. And so there's been a continuing attempt to undermine the NOSB. Uh, the NOSB no longer controls its budget. It no longer controls its agenda. Uh, we even had the situation where a USDA bureaucrat tried to take over as chair of the NOSB. That was so bad that everybody just said, this is totally unacceptable. Uh, but so there's a continuing uh, problem. And 
one of the difficulties of dealing with this is a lot of this stuff is in the back door. We don't know always who does this. Mm -hmm. USDA is, uh, has its own constituencies and, um, and some of them are very powerful. Monsanto and, and others, uh, are able to, um, and through campaign contributions and whatever, uh, to influence policy. I think one of the, one of the things that's made it difficult for us in organic and sustainable both is we don't have any PACs. Uh, we don't have any money to distribute to members of Congress. And so I think that's been a handicap, but we don't want to go that in that direction. Uh, we want the, the, the people to be uh, making these contacts uh, on their own. You know, and the, I know another issue of tension that I think is, will be there and, and is continuing to be worked on within this sort of broader sustainable committee is you can be organic and not necessarily doing a lot of the healthy things that were on some of the farms you described in your youth, you know, that provide places for wildlife, uh, that sort of thing. That when we want, want to look at a healthy landscape, organic isn't necessarily sufficient under the rules, as I understand it, at least in these bigger operations. Well, it's been very difficult right. to take the, um, the values and principles of the early organic farmers who were responsible for organic and translate that into, into rules and regulations. And that's, and that's been a terrible challenge. And so, you know, the way organic farmers in the beginning would set aside land for wildlife, as, as you mentioned, uh, and we're very conscious of, uh, soil erosion and, uh, soil fertility and inputs and so forth. A lot of that's been lost, uh, in trying to, um, to make the transition uh, from the early values and principles to the regulations and, and rules that we have now. That's a, that's a continuing problem and it's, it's a difficult problem to solve. And a lot of the characteristics of organic uh, such as, uh, in the early days at least, um, tending to be small is beautiful sort of thing, um, uh, being very concerned about the ability of organic farmers to, um, to be financially, uh, able. Uh, a lot of those early things, uh, have not become part of the rule at all. So they've sort of been lost. And, and people, old timers are saying, well, yes, it's organic, but it's not really organic because it's not like organic was in the beginning. So there's that, so there's that kind of thing. And then, of course, USDA, uh, does the accrediting of the certifiers. And I think many of us feel that the, uh, accreditation is, uh, not, um, adequately carried out. You know, they are accredited certifier for five years, don't make annual visits. And this is even more, uh, worrisome because they've accredited a lot of foreign certifiers. And so how do we know, uh, what's going on when the, um, regulations for accreditation are, we feel, uh, inadequate? I mean, if you have a certifier, Certifying 
organic farms in China, for example, and in most cases, this is a European certifier who's accredited by USDA. And USDA is not over there with some, uh, with an auditor every year looking at what's going on. How do we know? And the fact is we don't know. And so uh, I was involved in, um, in organic accreditation through a, a nonprofit that in the, in the early days, we, we accredited certifiers operating in 75 countries, actually, with very strict accreditation uh, rules and regulations. And we pulled the accreditation in two or three instances uh, because um, you had to be able to do that. Well, my own feeling from that experience is that the accreditation of certifiers, particularly those operating outside the USDA, is is uh, is worrisome. Well, you know, you've touched on this a little bit, and I do want to go back. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to get through this archiving process is, well, when we look back over the t uh, long term, things can look quite smooth and Things went along well and kind of just happened in a good way. But actually, even within the allies and the movement, there were tensions along the way. And I know one of them was in this area of organic and sustainability. And, and it caused some rifts and things that had to be dealt with. And I would like to at least get it on the record, your view of that and what that was about. Well, I think that, um, you know, I was involved in the Midwest SOG, Sustainable Agriculture uh, Working Group. Uh, which uh, became uh, connected to Sustainable Agriculture Coalition and other SOGs around the country. Uh, and then, um, you know, we set up the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture also. Um, in most cases, um, those of us who were organic advocates felt that um, they were very leery of organic. They didn't want to be on the record on the hill with organic, although maybe indirectly they were okay with organic, but they felt that they just couldn't be out in front on organic. This was a continuing problem. Uh, I think that's pretty much gone now. Uh, but in the eighties in particular, uh, you know, I, w I was certainly very unhappy. Uh, with some of the sustainable agriculture groups because, uh, they would not, they would not stand up for organic or even admit that, uh, it needed to be, needed to be supported. And so I think the, what happened in the nineties with the Organic Foods Production Act and the fight over the rule and so forth, um, now I think that these organizations are very happy to, um, to be okay with organic, but in terms of the of the of the national campaign, uh, it was in um, 1992 that a number of us decided that uh, we wanted to work together to support both organic and sustainable, and so we met at a ranch out in Colorado for a weekend, and we founded the national campaign for sustainable agriculture. And, and we founded it as the national dialogue. We wanted to have, uh, um, a better way for all of our organizations to work together on farm bills in particular, 
but we didn't want to have it become a structure with the need to raise a lot of money and have a big staff and all that. Well, as it turns out, um, this all started off well, and most of the work was done in committees. And one of the committees, and the biggest and best, was the organic committee. And I was one of the people who was very much involved in setting up and, and running the organic committee. And we had regular conference calls, and we had a meeting at the end of, of every year during that period where we, uh, where we came together and we looked at uh, how organic had done policy-wise in the last year, and then we made commitments about what we needed to do in the coming year. So this was a very uh, interesting and effective committee, I would say. And a lot of other organizations uh, became involved, and, and we actually had Liana Hoods as a staff member who was very good. And so, but we had trouble with the, the board. The, the national campaign had, in the meantime, decided to become a nonprofit, uh, to hire a staff, to raise money, uh, and then we found out that that the board was getting people who were not like us, I guess you'd say. And finally, in disgust, because we felt that um, the board was interfering with the organic committee, we just packed up and moved off. Mm. And we took the whole organic committee and set up the National Organic Coalition. And we said, goodbye campaign. I mean, if you don't want to uh, support organic, that's fine with us. We're going to set up our own organization. So now the National Organic Coalition is the uh, fully organic committed uh, organization that's doing very good work on the Hill. And I'm continuing to serve as a as an advisor uh, and a lot of the organizations that I've been involved in are members. And then there are also affiliates. And so this is a this is a really going concern at the present time. It's and I think that some of that rift has pretty much been healed over the years and that the campaign, that campaign now works quite closely with NSAC on a legislative agenda once again. As far as well, actually, uh, that campaign collapsed. But I mean that the organic coalition, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, now. Your, yes. And I know that, that NSAC, uh, when it puts out its... Uh, program for the year, there's an organic component that's a very good one. And so, yes, that's that's all been healed over, I think. And so I think we feel fine about that. And I know we have at NOC meetings, National Organic Coalition, we have heard uh, come in and uh, share his views. And we try very much to work very closely. The The problems that we have now, to the extent that there are these kinds of problems, is with the trade association, uh, the organic trade association, which is very much uh, the business side. And many of the companies that are involved in the organic trade association are big food companies that happen to have uh, an organic uh, line. Yep. And so there still is tension, but it's a different kind of tension. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think one of the things that brings it together, too, I've been reading uh, up on NSAC's agenda over the years is the Beginning Farmer Initiative. And so many of the farmers that are getting started 
naturally look to, well, where can I have a market for what I'm doing? And it brings organics very much into that program. That is right. Uh, uh, a new beginning farmer, and in many cases now, these are women as well, right. uh, can get 10 acres, uh, do organic vegetables, and do very, very well. And um, and develop and develop regular market, uh, get certified, and get the premium, and um, and this has really helped, as you as you suggest, a lot of uh, young people to get started in farming. And we also see people who leave who leave Wall Street and other kinds of jobs and go back to the land and start out in the same way. So they're older. I always say young and beginning because the beginning is people at a later stage in their life who decide to um, get a piece of land and start uh, raising organic vegetables and well, fruit. Yes. Right. When one of the things that reminded me, and I've heard you talk about this in other venues, is the over their career, the role of women in this movement in agriculture. And uh, I noticed that even on the staffs of so many of the groups that are promoting sustainable ag and organics are women. And uh, I know you've, you've observed that in your over your years. Yes, and I've I've been uh, I've been watching this this closely. I think that uh, many of the conventional farm organizations have never been friendly to women, and women rarely are on boards or have important positions. Organic has been totally welcoming women. And as you say, you look at uh, OTA is headed by a woman, OFRF, Organic Farming Research Foundation, is headed by a woman, uh, Moses is headed by a woman. And you can just go down the line of the, the strong role that women are playing, not only as organic farmers uh, and, and involved in the certi and certifiers, and inspectors, whatever, uh, but in these nonprofit organizations that are um, that are advocating both organic and sustainable, the so women have really found a home where they're welcomed and appreciated, and I think that this has made a huge difference uh, in the strength of these organizations. Well, I personally see that as an area for optimism too, in the fact that. Women are landowners in so many cases, and there's organizations springing up just to work with women on how to learn to manage and have the courage and backing to really manage their land in a sustainable way. And and widows who who have farms now are finding ways to get them farmed organically, uh, that because of their own views about about the environment and earth friendly farming. So this is a this is a huge thing, really. I think it is. And I've, one of the things that I've tried to do over the years is uh, I've been very much involved in mentoring. And in many cases, I've been mentoring um, young women who are working their way up through nonprofit organizations. And um, I think that's a role that has been necessary in many ways. And, uh, and I continue to do that. Good, good. Well, you know, another area I wanted to be sure and cover is that your career also included a lot of work in other countries. And uh, I, uh, you know, the whole international work and the way that the organic movement 
checked in with other countries and learned from what was going on in other countries. And he played a role in that. And I'd like you to talk about that. Yes. Uh, well, I was in the first farm group that um, went to China, was invited to China after the opening. At the end, at the end of the Cultural Revolution, uh, some American groups were invited to come. Uh, I was in the first group, a group of Kansas farmers, and I joined them. And we traveled all over China looking at Chinese agriculture. And uh, when we came back, Father John Stitz of the Archdiocese of Kansas City had set this up. John and I decided to have a second tour. We went back the second year. And the second year, we took some land-grant scientists with us, a physician, a couple of rural sociologists, because we found in our first trip that there were a lot of questions that we really needed to have asked, but we didn't have the expertise to do it. And so on the second trip, we actually had experts. Uh, and so we visited uh, research stations and so forth. And it was a little different kind of a trip. But anyway, um, I spent five weeks uh, traveling around China, looking at Chinese agriculture. I was familiar with the book, uh, Farmers of 40 Centuries, F.H. King's book. And I actually walked across fields that had been farmed for 4,000 years and still were raising two or three crops a year. And this was all due to the law of return, which is a very important principle of organic, so that everything that was taken from the land was returned. And I've never seen so many compost piles as I saw in my visits to China, but also the whole system of taking human waste and safely composting it and putting it into and mixing it with uh, food waste and uh, other things so that it could be safely returned to the land. That's something that has still not been done uh, anywhere else. And so um, I was greatly influenced uh, by my travels in China. And I think it was in um, uh, 1992 or 93, I can't remember. I was invited to speak at a, an international conference in Beijing. Uh, and, uh, to make a presentation at a workshop. And because of my earlier travels, I assumed that organic was still the big deal in China. And so I, I did a, a really good paper on what's happening around the world on organic and the values and principles and so forth. I took 50 copies with me. When I got there, I discovered in looking at the agenda that my paper was the only one of 90 presentations that was about organic. And I have to say that the managers of this conference found out about this and they said, Roger, you're not going to do your presentation at a workshop. You're going to do it to the whole conference. And so I had an opportunity then to make a full presentation on organic to an international conference in China. It was really a breakthrough. And what that did was then I was approached by the Ministry of Agriculture to come and I made several trips uh, as a consultant uh, on organic uh, to the Green Food Development Center, which is a 
an agency of the Ministry of Agriculture. They had a program uh, called Foreign Experts Program that provided uh, the funding for this. And I also developed a relationship with China Agricultural University, and I was invited to do the first workshop on organic ever in China, a week-long uh, workshop that not only involved graduate students and faculty, but they also invited in people from the ministry and, and elsewhere. So uh, I have a, I still have a continuing relationship uh, with the development of organic in China. And actually, I've been to China 12 times. Really? And I am very, very familiar with uh, the organic movement in China, both its good things and its things that are not so good. Yeah. But, um, and it's been very difficult to develop organic uh, as an alternative. But I have to say about the Ministry of Agriculture, they have said, um, we're not for or against organic. If it, if it works, okay. And if it doesn't, okay. And that's kind of been it. And then there's been tension uh, in China between the Ministry of Agriculture and the Environmental Protection Agency of China. And the only um, USDA-accredited certifier in China is the one set up by the Environmental Protection Agency. And we also accredited that when I was involved in the accreditation program. It's a very fine program in China. Many of them are not. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, um, I got involved in organic in this um, really NGO organic accreditation body. Um, and we did accreditation when no one else was doing it. I served on the board uh, for 12 years and traveled all over the world um, visiting organic operations and going to organic meetings. And what I discovered was there's an organic movement everywhere. And the question is, how do, what can we do to share information, uh, to share res research results? Uh, there's the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements, uh, an international organization. Uh, there are research stations in Germany and elsewhere. And so it truly is, organic truly is an international movement. And one of the reasons that accreditation is so important is is in trade and so once you accredit a certifier i always use bolivia as an example there's a little certifier in bolivia that you'd think uh you know wouldn't have any idea what they were doing we accredited them almost instantly because they were so good and it what it what the accreditation did was opened up the european market uh, for the products of bolivia and what our accreditation did was to ease the restrictions and make it possible for organic uh, food to move internationally. And this has been a big challenge, and it still is to some extent. So that's why uh, USDA accreditation of certifiers and the fact that they need to do a good job with this is so important that consumers need to have confidence uh, that this system is is what it says it is. So we import a lot of organic food yeah. and a lot of 
consumers are a little leery about organic food that comes from Mexico, China, and so forth. And so this whole accreditation scheme is truly um, vital uh, to making this work and to um, assuring consumers that um, uh, that there's a an, a guarantee of, of integrity. Well, I've been thinking about now. Uh, I've looked at quite a bit of your life. Just really just touched on it, but I'd I'd like to move at uh, sort of your thinking about the future. Uh, and uh, I'd like to start by noting that just the recognition you are starting to, well, you've received a lot over your life, but very recently, a really nice recognition, a recognition in Wisconsin, did you not? Yes, I was, um, I was honored by the College of Agriculture at the University of Wisconsin for uh, contributions and uh, unselfish service to organic farming, which is a kind of, they, they give away this reward every year, but I was really the first one that was honored as someone involved in organic. The, I have to say that the College of Agriculture at the University of Wisconsin has made great strides in responding to the needs of organic farmers. And I was very proud to have this award from from the College of Agriculture there, because I've followed what they're doing. And there are some wonderful um, faculty members there who are leaders in um, organic research. And of course, um, some wonderful graduate students there as well. And I know that was, I think this was happening before this, but you've also chosen to use the university, the history, um, uh, society at, in Wisconsin is the archive for your considerable amount of papers and yes. records at your service, right? Yes. Um, I'm a saver. Uh, over 45 years, I've, I ended up in, in my attic with um, 60 or 70 boxes of material. I've never thrown anything away. <laughs> And I needed a place to go with these papers. And, uh, and through uh, some assistance, a uh, connection was made with the Wisconsin Historical Society. And, and as it turned out, the Wisconsin Historical Society had just done a survey of its members. This is a very strong organization, uh, saying what new areas should we be looking at? And the results came back you should be doing something on organic and sustainable agriculture. And at that very time, I showed up and said, I have these, all of these papers and I want to contribute. And what developed from this is a partnership between me and people within the historical society and setting up the National Organic and Sustainable Agriculture History Collection which is a going concern. We now have papers from a number of leaders uh, in organic. I've donated 40 boxes so far, and I probably have 15 more. So all of my papers from 45 years of work in organic and sustainable are being archived. And the first half, the first 25 boxes are now open and available to researchers and others. And so this is 
the place for people who have been involved in the movement to have their papers preserved and archived and made available to researchers and others. So I'm very proud uh, of this, and I'm very much involved still uh, in the development of this center and in finding people who have papers to, um, to donate. So this is a very important part of my life right now, in addition to uh, sorting and, and um, organizing my own papers and donating them. Well, and that's kind of where I wanted to go with this forward idea. That's forward thinking. You know, that's those papers are going to be increasingly important to people in the future. And I'd like to have you talk a little bit about what you think the future, what are the needs now coming up in uh, to advance organic and sustainable agriculture? And where do you think it could end up? Well, of course, uh, my view is that eventually um, all agriculture uh, will will have to be organic. I think because of the uh, adverse impacts of more conventional agriculture, I think that maybe the environment uh, cannot survive um, conventional farming. Whereas I think that earth-friendly farming is absolutely essential um, into the future. And I think we we know how to do that. Uh, I think in terms of challenges for the future, um, one of the things that we need to really work on is to show that organic agriculture is one of the answers to the climate change issue. Uh, organic farmers uh, are able to, I'm trying to think of the word, um, sequester sequester carbon in the soil. I mean, this is part of what they do. And this is one of the, one of the issues, of course. Uh, so I think that, and there, and there are many other reasons, uh, why organic, uh, can contribute to, uh, dealing with the whole climate change issue. So that's one thing. Another thing is we need to confront and deal with this whole question of can organic feed the world? I mean, we have increasing uh, research now that shows, yes, organic can feed the world. Uh, the question is not, can it? The question is, what can we do to help it do a better job of this? There's a brand new study out from Washington State University, John Reganold, who reviewed hundreds and hundreds of research studies over the years. And John, John's new study comes to the conclusion that organic plus, you know, some other sustainable type things all together can certainly deal with the issue of, of feeding the world. You don't need GMOs. You don't need chemicals. You don't need any of these kinds of things. And that an earth friendly approach to, um, uh, food production is realistic and will satisfy our needs uh, as far as we can see into the future. I think a third challenge for us is to, is to get, um, uh, I think, fairness uh, in terms of government support for organic. 
Organic is now 5% of the market. Organic, at the very least, should get 5% of the research money, the extension money, uh, the credit money, all of the things that, that USDA provides. And I think it should be more than a fair share because of the fact that we haven't been able to get this in the past. We need more organic research. Uh, we, we need more research on things like um, varieties that do well in organic systems. I mean, this is a, certainly an area. As, uh, as you may know, I was uh, coordinator for uh, organic research for the Ceres Trust, and, um, and I made 62 grants to land-grant scientists. And one of the things that we insisted on in the proposals that we received was that organic farmers had to be involved in designing the research. And I think we're seeing uh, more of that in the government research uh, grants as well. It's, it's, the farmers know what the needs are. The scientists know how to do the research. And as I speak to graduate students, I always say, you've got to get to know some farmers. And if possible, even spend some time on an organic farm so you understand the principles and the values and what's really involved here. It's and not the just... The whole system of the farm. That's right. Exactly. It's not just something that you can um, get on top of by just reading reports and so forth. And so um, I've actually set up a fund myself uh, to pay for uh, travel of graduate students at, it's, uh, I don't have that much money, at the University of Wisconsin to organic farming conferences. Oh. So now at, uh, you know, I go to conferences and I have young people come up to me and say, Roger, thank you so much for making it possible to for me to come to this organic farming conference. So that's a that's a commitment that I, you know, make into the future. I just think that getting graduate students who do organic research and in, in understand what organic is all about and learn it from the farmers themselves is really, really important. And have the research projects be uh, designed to the extent possible by the farmers. We wouldn't fund anything unless uh, there was, it was demonstrated that the researchers had reached out and got farmers involved in designing the project. So, Well, and I know you're going to be speaking once again this year to the, the Midwest Organic Conference, which now I, last year, I think 3,500 people attended. 3,000. You've seen that over the years, and you've spoken, what, how many? 24 rows? Something? Uh, this will be my 24th year that I've been a speaker at this conference. Uh, I was present when Moses started. I was present when the conference started. And this, uh, the whole Moses organization as an organic farming uh, organization and advocate uh, has been a very important part of my uh, professional life. I want to, I want to double back okay. to something that uh, we touched on before. And that is, um, you know, my own approach to what's happening in agriculture generally. So I'm, I, I didn't just do organic and sustainable. I got very much involved in 
solar energy applications on the farm, uh, farmland preservation. I did a national study of uh, loss of agricultural land, uh, anti-corporate farming. I've been very much involved in uh, helping set up congressional hearings, for example, uh, looking at um, at organic uh, at, at corporate farming, and 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 I was involved, of course, with the National Farmers Organization and collective bargaining, uh, and the whole idea that uh, farmers needed to not to have a profit and make that a part of of what we what we accept as as the right thing to do. I mean, we talked about parity at one time. Uh, that was very popular. I think that's kind of gone away, but I think the idea of, of farmers being able to make a profit, uh, some of my work has been around uh, uh, small farms uh, and um, the impact of organic uh, and sustainable on communities, uh, different kinds of uh, marketing alternatives such as the uh, CSAs, for example, so that I have tried in my in my career and as a consultant, you can do this, uh, being involved in many aspects of this. And uh, what I like to do is uh, design projects so that you can get people focused on a particular problem. You know, one was, of course, the Small Farm Energy Project. Uh, uh, farmers building their own solar systems. Another was the Soul of Agriculture project, looking, getting the uh, faith-based organizations involved in addressing the issues of what's happening to the land. Um, the uh, I developed for Moses the Organic University, uh, which is a series of courses. Five hundred people at least at every conference take take these courses. And I also developed the, um, uh, what do you call it? A system where older farmers adopt younger farmers. And, uh, and transition. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's not the word for it. But anyway, I developed this program at Moses, which is a continuing program as well. So I'm, I've always been uh, interested in uh, developing projects and then uh, projects that were that would mobilize people around around an issue and also uh, formalizing a project so that you can get the funding so I'm glad you brought that up because as we were talking about farms organic farms good healthy organic sustainable farms are a whole system I think while those different areas you've worked are actually not despaired at all. They're actually part of a whole system. What needs to happen all the way from scale issues, treatment of the land, markets, uh, is if we're going to really achieve this vision that you hold of a truly organic agriculture. Yeah. Thank you very much. My pleasure. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs. 